Hi, Dave Ramey here. This is, for the record, program number 1310, Beat Politics and the Death of Iris Chang, Part 4. This is being recorded on August 11th of the year 2023. Uh, three quick notes before we begin. First of all, at the top of each written for the record description and each food for thought post, there are several links. One of those links uh, well, one of those links will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made of For the Record by Sister Station WFMU. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume For the Record, then uh, WFMU is podcasting For the Record. Another link will enable you to obtain the 32-gigabyte flash drive with all of my life's work, both printed and recorded on it, plus a mini-library of old anti-fascist books. A new version of that will be ready shortly. Uh, we may actually have to go to a 64-gigabyte flash drive because a lot of work has been done. And please check the SpitfireList.com website on a regular basis for, among other things, the brilliant comments that were made by Parafractal, our contributing editor, and often uh, comments by other intelligent listeners as well. Now, we are going to uh, jump right back in due to the limitations of time. Uh, we're not going to be able to recap all of the information that we have spoken about in uh, uh, the first part of the program, and indeed we're going to recap parts of uh, 1108 in this broadcast as well. Uh, the late Iris Chang was deemed to have committed suicide. Uh, there are reasons to suspect that she may have been a victim of mind control. Uh, there also are reasons to suspect that her, quote, suicide, unquote, was assisted. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, before we get into uh, discussion of some of the deep politics surrounding George W. Bush, and as we looked at in our last program, Iris Chang was very critical of George Bush and had also written articles uh, critical of him and of aspects of the Clinton administration's policies as well. We're going to turn now to a section of uh, the book, The Woman Who Could Not Forget, subtitled Iris Chang Before and Beyond the Rape of Nanking. It is a memoir by her mother, Yingying Chang, and was published in softcover by Pegasus Books, I believe. Hang on one second. Yes, Pegasus Books. And there is an interesting aspect of Iris's book tour about the rape of Nanking. And we're going to turn to uh, the woman who could not forget to, for that uh, discussion. Ying Ying Chang writes, During the book tour, there was a person who came up and talked to me, uh, quote, During the book tour, there was a person who came up and talked to me in a threatening tone, quote, You will be safer to join us, unquote. What did you say to this person, Shaojin asked, that's her father. Quote, I was scared and did not know what to do, so I just ran away and did not say a word, Iris replied. And then uh, skipping down. We spent, about, we spent about an hour discussing the issue. It seemed Iris did not feel she'd handled the situation well. She said she should not have just run away from that person. I could see she was not convinced about what we had told her. This was the second time she had mentioned this incident to us. The first time was right after she'd come back 
from the extended five-week-long book tour in April and May. She wanted us to keep it confidential. Well, again, it is not altogether clear who exactly was trying to recruit her, but uh, one of the things that I wonder is whether perhaps she was uh, being recruited by the CIA. That's pure conjecture. But someone apparently uh, wanted Iris to uh, join them because she would be safer if, in fact, she joined them. And that is something to uh, contemplate. Uh, Also note that Iris felt uh, that her problems were external. In other words, her, her problems, as we looked at in For the Record 1107 and 1108, were external, uh, that, that her problems were not internal, i.e. Uh, mental disturbance, as people around her had believed she was, as people around her believed she was suffering from. Uh, we looked at not only Iris's criticism of George W. Bush, but uh, we're going to review a short section of what happened uh, when she went to Louisville, Kentucky, and then we're going to talk about Kentucky and George W. Bush in a second. Once again, turning to the woman who could not forget. That night, we went to sleep and assumed that Iris would be all right. But about 2 a.m. California time in the early morning of Friday, August 13th, we were awakened by a phone call. I picked up the phone, and it was Iris. Her voice was shaking, and and told me she had some. Her voice was shaking, and she told me she had seen some frightening pictures on TV in her hotel room. Iris and I then had a conversation about this. Apparently, she could not fall asleep, so she turned the TV on, and I asked her what kind of pictures were on the TV screen. She said it showed some horrible atrocities and ugly images of children torn apart by wars. She said that the TV was showing something similar to scenes from hell, like an imagined World War III. She then turned off her TV, waited a while, and then turned it on again to find that the ugly images had disappeared. I responded that maybe the TV had been showing a war movie. It's very possible. I said that during the wee hours of the night, TV stations would show such a genre of horror films. Then, Iris told me she did not feel things had been quite right from the very moment she arrived at the hotel. The clerk at the front desk looked suspicious to her and spoke to a person who later kept looking at the window of her room. While Iris was talking with me on the phone, she told me that she could still see that person standing outside on the lawn, not far from her room. He looked at her window as she peered through her curtain. She told me she suspected her room was wired and that what she had seen on TV was real and intentionally shown to threaten her. Uh, I would note that uh, obviously I was not in the room at the time, but such things are uh, definitely possible to do. One of the major cable TV pro- uh, companies, I believe it's Direct TV, put a question mark by that, is a subsidiary of Hughes Electronics, and that company is inexplicably linked with the Central Intelligence Agency and the intelligence community in general. Uh, We're also going to look at some things that uh, Iris, uh, basically some things she was going through with regard to her trip to Kentucky. 
We're going to turn now to the epilogue to the paperback edition of The Rape of Nanking, published by Basic Books in 2011. And in the epilogue to this, by her, her widowed, her widow Brett, he has since remarried, that's Brett Douglas, we read uh, the following about Iris in the run-up to her trip to Louisville, Kentucky. Around the same time, we went to see the 2004 version of the Manchurian Candidate, in which the government used mind control on Gulf War soldiers. The movie heightened her anxiety. She spent the next few days preparing for an upcoming business trip to Louisville to meet Colonel Arthur Kelly and interview survivors of the Bataan Death March. Instead of sleeping, she spent the next few nights visiting websites on autism, Gulf War syndrome, and many conspiracy theories. Uh, I would note, and this is not the fine fault with Brett Douglas, I'm sure that the whole experience of Iris's death, again, allegedly a suicide, I'm not at all convinced of that, but uh, it certainly was a very upsetting experience. Yet, when you hear uh, people who are uh, high-profile political activists and who are definitely disturbing the waters of the political seascape, to coin the term, uh, and if they die under strange circumstances, beware of the term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist. It's basically used to discredit the person and to imply that they are a deranged nut. And more about her trip to Louisville. By this time, Iris was firmly convinced that they were trying to drug her or poison her, so she once, so she once again refused to eat, drink anything, or sleep while she was there. This is after she had been taken uh, to a psychiatric hospital by a Colonel Kelly and his wife, a retired nurse. If Iris had her breakdown at home, surrounded by uh, this continuing what, what Brett wrote, if Iris had her breakdown at home, surrounded by people she loved and trusted, it would not have been nearly as traumatic for her. Instead, she concluded that the people who had tried to help her in Louisville were all part of a Bush administration conspiracy to harm her. During the last three months of her life, we could never get her to let go of that belief. And apparently, uh, she bought more than one handgun, and she bought one to protect herself because she felt that her life might be in danger. Once again, turning to Brett Douglas's epilogue to the 2011 paperback uh, edition of The Rape of Nam King, Iris's signature book. This, uh, Brett writes, this was, the f- this was the first indication we had that she had any plans to buy a gun. When we questioned her, she told us she believed the U.S. government was out to get her and she needed a gun to protect herself. Skipping down, after her experience in Louisville, Iris firmly believed the Bush administration meant to do harm to her. She was hopeful that John Kerry would defeat George Bush in the November 2004 election, but Bush's victory was announced on November 3rd. Her thoughts of four more years of persecution were too much for her. The police investigation after her death concluded that she purchased the first handgun on the very next day. Well, uh, I was, I'm sure, was uh, very stressed out and disturbed by what the pressure she was experiencing, but I don't think that one should dismiss uh, her 
psychological state or her fear or uh, her, frankly, uh, psychological instability. When people are being terrorized by the government and believe me, the government can and does do that um, to people of Iris's stature, it will take its toll. And uh, that's something that we simply uh, should never lose sight of. I also want to note something that, uh, once again, turning to the woman who could not forget, we're going to review some information from a San Francisco Chronicle article about Iris Chang's death. Uh, It is by Heidi Benson, historian Iris Chang won many battles, the war she lost, Rage Within, unquote, from from April 17th of 2005. Iris uh, was found dead on November 9th of 2004. That is the German Day of Destiny. It also is the same day on which then-Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger of California, a man with a uh, Nazi pedigree in spite of his uh, disclaimers to the contrary, as we wrote that in For the Record 421, uh, was meeting with prominent Japanese industrialists in order to see how to further uh, California's ties to Japanese industry. And as we have looked at in many programs, uh, the Japanese financial and industrial elite is inextricably linked with the Golden Lily program that uh, looted all of Asia and staffed the loot in the Philippines and elsewhere. Uh, I would note that the definitive book about that is called Gold Warriors by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave. And on the cover, there is an endorsement by Iris Chang in which she says that the Seagraves have uncovered one of the last or one of the biggest secrets of World War II. She uh, was given a credit in the book Gold Warriors. And when I interviewed Sterling Seagrave uh, for, for the record program number 689, I asked him to discuss the death of Iris Chang. He would not. He was convinced that she was murdered, but did not want to talk about it. And Sterling Seagrave was anything but a uh, shrinking violet. And as we looked at in many programs, uh, including for the record 1106, not only had Sterling and Peggy Seagrave themselves received uh, numerous death threats and uh, very strange uh, harassment over the decades because of their books, but uh, in 2011, Sterling Seagrave was almost killed in an attempt on his life on Christmas Day of that year. And they were not paranoid. And for someone as brave as Sterling Seagrave to decline to talk about Iris's death, he was convinced she was murdered. Uh, that is something in and of itself. Uh, I want to note that uh, Iris Chang basically was found in her car on the morning of November 4th of, uh, November 9th, excuse me, of 2004. And in the uh, aforementioned San Francisco Chronicle article uh, from uh, from April 17th of 2005, historian Iris Chang won many battles. The war she lost raged within by Heidi Benson. Uh, we read about the circumstances surrounding uh, Iris's suicide. Now bear in mind, she was found on the morning of November 9th of 2004. And here is the condition on which, in which she was found. The guy who found the quote, he noticed condensation on the windows, peered inside, and saw Iris in the driver's seat with her hands crossed in her lap. 
The revolver lay on her left leg. She had ostensibly uh, shot herself in the mouth with a large caliber weapon, and while I would not say that it's physically impossible for her hands to be crossed in her lap and the revolver laying on her left leg while her head was leaning uh, to the left uh, on, against the window, it's unlikely that uh, those physical circumstances would have resulted from Iris putting a gun in her mouth, discharging it, and committing suicide in that manner. Again, possible but unlikely. Uh, turning once again to the woman who could not forget by Lingling Chang, uh, or excuse me, by Yingying Chang, excuse me, the day that Iris uh, was found dead was a very traumatic one for her mother and for her family. And we're going to, uh, in a sense, jump into that day. And Yingying Chang writes, I can't recall when I fell asleep that night. I just remember the frightening sound of a ringing telephone piercing the quiet darkness. It was Brett. He said he was coming to our house with a police officer. I looked at the clock on the wall. It was nearly midnight. We opened the door. Brett and a plainclothes officer came in. Both looked solemn. Uh, quote, I'm sorry to inform you that Iris is dead, unquote, the officer said. She shot herself early this morning, and her body was found in her car near Los Gatos, unquote. I felt as if I had been caught in a violent storm. The thunder was deafening. The lightning blinded me. The earth seemed to shake. Sha Jin and I, that's uh, Iris's father and Ying Ying's husband, Sha Jin and I collapsed onto the carpet of our living room, and I found myself falling into an endless black tunnel. I heard my voice echoing, Iris, Iris, how could you kill yourself? How could you desert Christopher, her son, me, and your father? How could you do such a thing to me? How can I live the rest of my life without you? But I would have to. All I have now are decades of memories, some haunting, but most filled with love. Uh, the thing, again, that I think is unlikely, again, that there may have been some sort of bureaucratic foul-up, but she was found in the morning in her car, and she, the license plate certainly would have told uh, any investigator quite quickly who she was, where she lived, etc. The fact that it took this long for uh, an identification apparently to be made, uh, her Widowed husband Brett Douglas and a plainclothes police officer came to her parents' house around midnight. That is, uh, again, that's a long time considering that her body was found in the morning. Again, I have a healthy respect for how bureaucracies can mess things up, but 2004 was in the modern era of telecommunications, and she was found in her car with the license plate obviously on the car, so, so it should have been a relatively quick process to identify who the deceased was and to then notify the next of kin, I think, sooner than midnight of that night. Again, this is not definitive, but it is unlikely that uh, it would have taken that long. And uh, 
it, it's possible. Again, possible that she would have, that, that her hands would have been crossed in her lap with the gun resting on her left leg. It's also possible that it would have taken almost till midnight or certainly well into the evening hours of November 9th to uh, make the identification and notify the next of kin. But both are relatively, uh, I believe both are unlikely, and the overlap of two unlikely circumstances, uh, I think, should be taken into account and should be seen as, uh, frankly, relatively suspicious. I would also note that uh, Iris was convinced that she was the focal point of a, a government conspiracy, as we have seen. And uh, that San Francisco Chronicle article noted that, quote, there are, in talking about her suicide note, there are aspects of my experience in Louisville that I will never understand. I can never shake my belief that I was being recruited and later persecuted by forces more powerful than I could have imagined. Whether it was the CIA or some other organization, I will never know. As long as I am alive, these forces will never stop hounding me. Days before I left for Louisville, I had a deep foreboding about my safety. I sensed suddenly threats to my own life, an eerie feeling that I was being followed in the streets, the white van parked outside my house, damaged mail arriving at my P.O. box. I believe my detention at Norton Hospital was the government's attempt to discredit me. And uh, I would note in that regard uh, from the book Terrorist Hunter uh, by Rita Katz, uh, I want to note Rita's own experiences. And this is about her work with uh, people who had been investigating the Operation Green Quest raids of March 20th of 2002. Uh, those uncovered direct links going to the Bush administration. Then on April 4th of 2002, Talat Otman, who was a director of Harkin Energy, more about Harkin in a minute, and also had given a Muslim benediction at George W. Bush's inauguration, uh, interceded directly with then-Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill on behalf of the elements that were raided on March 20th of 2002. Paul O'Neill was then uh, dismissed, was fired as uh, head of the uh, Treasury Department uh, in December of 2002. And Robert Mueller, who was head of the FBI, shall we say was less than vigorous in his pursuit of Operation Green Quest. And so, again, there was a direct link between Operation Green Quest and Harkin Energy. But now we'll note what happened to Iris, uh, excuse me, to uh, Rita Katz after she helped with the uh, following the terrorist 9-11 money trail. The CIA and in, in terrorist hunter, she writes, the CIA and the FBI investigated everyone who had anything to do with the SAR investigation. White vans, I guess reported the same phenomenon, white vans and SUVs with dark windows appeared near all of the homes of the SAR investigators. All agents, some of whom were very experienced with surveillance, knew they were being followed. So was I. I felt that I was being followed everywhere and watched at home in the supermarket on the way to work. And for what? Now I was being watched 24-7. It's a terrible sensation to know that you have no privacy and no security. 
that strained clicking of the phones that wasn't there before, the oh-so-crudely-opened mail of home in the office, and the same man I spied in my neighborhood supermarket who was also on the train I took to Washington a week ago. Life can be miserable when you know that someone's always breathing down your neck. Well, again, that appears to be what Iris was going through, and some of the same things. Uh, crudely open mail at home in the office, uh, at home and in the office, uh, white vans outside of her home. Iris reported the same thing. It is not at all surprising that she would have felt terror from what she was uh, looking into. And again, as we look back in part three of this series, the program before this one, Iris Chang was very critical of the Bush administration. She was critical of the treatment of Muslim Americans in the wake of the September 11th attacks. And she even felt that a number of things were setting the stage for America to turn into the sort of state that she had investigated in the rape of Nanking, i.e. a fascist terrorist state. Uh, what we're going to do in the last half hour plus of this program is to revisit some of the deep politics not only surrounding uh, Golden Lily and the material covered in the book Gold Warriors, but specifically around George W. Bush in connection with that and in connection with Harkin Energy. Recall that Iris, at the time uh, she went to Louisville, was uh, doing working on a film and a book about the survivors of the Bataan Death March. Some of those survivors had been had filed lawsuits against Japanese corporations to uh, basically oblige the corporations to compensate them for the slave labor they had been obliged to perform as slaves and POWs in World War II. Uh, very tellingly, the late Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah, Republican of Utah, uh, took the government to task for frustrating those lawsuits and said, you mean we, we're, we're going to say, to hell with you, Batan death marchers? That is exactly what the government said, that the, the lawsuits were dismissed. So when Iris was looking into the Bataan Death March, she was looking into something that would have uh, basically uh, disturbed the soil around the 1951 peace treaty between the U.S. and Japan that was negotiated by John Foster Dulles. And uh, indeed, it was Judge Vaughn Walker appointed by Poppy Bush, uh, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush's father, who uh, dismissed the lawsuits. Uh, we also looked at the fact that the Golden Lily program, we looked at this in Public Records 1107 and 1108, we also took a look at the fact that the Golden Lily uh, program really began with the rape of Nan King in 1937. That was the focal point of Iris's most uh, famous book, and the one which, as we looked at in our last program, actually stimulated a congressional resolution in favor of compensation of people who were held as slaves by the Japanese. And indeed, George W. Bush himself was not in any way separate from the golden, uh, the gold that was stashed in the Philippines. Trimming now the Gold Warriors by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave, we read about George W. Bush's attempts at getting uh, some of the uh, gold from the Philippines for his blind trust. The Seagraves write 
on uh, pages on page 235 in the paperback edition of Go Warriors. In March of 2001, only weeks into the new Bush administration, two U.S. Navy ships arrived in the Philippines carrying teams of SEAL commandos. According to a source at the U.S. Embassy, they were sent to the Philippines to recover gold as part of a plan to enlarge America's reserves. This gold, the embassy source said, would come from two places, new excavations of Yamashita gold vaults and the purchase at a deep discount of Japanese loot already recovered and held in private vaults by wealthy Filipinos. One of the two ships sailed on to Mindanao to pick on a load of bullion the embassy source said was owned by the family of the new president, Gloria Macabal Arroyo, Gloria Macabal Arroyo. President Bush, the source said, was being very aggressive. Unquote. The buzz among gold hunters in Luzon was that associates of President Bush and his family were privately in the market to buy some of the bullion still being recovered from Golden Lily sites. One of the names dropped by gold bugs in Manila was that of East Texas oil billionaire William Stamps Farish, an intimate friend and fishing companion of the Bush family. Will Farish, who raises horses in Kentucky, that's where Iris uh, had so much trouble, and is board chairman of Churchill Downs, where the Kentucky Derby is staged, had just been nominated by President Bush to be America's new ambassador to the court of St. James, where he was a personal friend of Queen Elizabeth. The buzz has special resonance because Will Farish is said to be the manager of President Bush's blind trust. And again, he was not only an East Texas oil billionaire, uh, and also part of a family that had long connections to the Bush family. Uh, we took a look in the record of 1108 at the fact that George H.W. Uh, Bush had the descendants of many people who had been involved with the uh, support American corporations gave to Nazi Germany. Uh, William Draper, William uh, S. Farish III, and uh, others uh, also were descendants of uh, the prior family as well. Again, that is all in the written description for For the Record 1107 and 1108. Worth noting, too, that there are indications that uh, Colonel Tsubi the Colonel Suji, excuse me, PSUJI, PSUJI, Masanobu, uh, was involved with the Bataan death marches, and he also was deeply involved with the uh, amassing of the loot of uh, Golden Lily. And what we're going to do for the last uh, half hour or so of this program is to review some of the deep politics that link uh, the Golden Lily program, uh, Yamashita's gold, and uh, the generations of the Bush family, and also uh, many other figures involved with uh, the Golden Lily loot and the Philippines. This includes uh, William Quasha, his son Alan Quasha, who became a key member of the board of directors of Harkin Energy. Again, that was the firm for uh, for which another director, Pavat Otman, had uh, worked, and he gave again the a Muslim benediction at George W. Bush's inauguration, and then interceded directly with Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill on behalf of the institutions that were raided by Operation uh, in, by the uh, people who were looking into the SAR uh, network, and Rita Katz spoke about that, and there were also 
uh, were basically the targets of the Operation Green Quest raids on March 20th of 2002. Again, I read it quickly, but the investigation into the SAR network was that investigation, and you saw what happened, or you saw Rita Katz's account of what happened to the investigators. They became the investigated. And again, uh, it was uh, Tabat Atman who interceded with then-Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill on behalf of the targets of the SAR investigation. Paul O'Neill was subsequently fired in December of 2002. And what we're going to do in, in examining the deep politics surrounding uh not only uh, Harkin Energy, George W. Bush's father, uh, George H.W. Bush, other members of the Bush family, the MacArthur family. We're going to turn to, among other books, Family of Secrets by Russ Baker. It's a brilliant book. Uh, we, I interviewed Russ Baker in for six hours uh, back in 2010. And in Family of Secrets, uh, Russ Baker writes, In September of 1986, as oil prices continued to collapse, and W's previous financial savior, the Cincinnati-based Spectrum 7 Energy, was itself failing, along came the Dallas-based Harkin, a comparatively little-known independent oil and gas company riding to the rescue. Harkin snapped up Spectrum, put W on its board, and gave him a handsome compensation package. Uh, interrupting briefly, remember Tabat Atman was another director, and Alan Quasha, the son of William Quasha, also became a director and then was apparently, uh, I think it was head of the board of directors. More about the uh, father and son Quasha in a few minutes. One more time. Harkin snapped up Spectrum, put W on this board, parenthetically with Tabat Atman and Alan Quasha, and gave him a handsome compensation package. In return, Bubby was allowed to go about his business, which at that time meant playing a crucial role in his father's presidential campaign. But the Harkin assist didn't just benefit Poppy's political fortunes. Profits from W's subsequent sale of Harkin stock would jack up his own political career. The Harkin deal ultimately made it possible for him to become part owner and highly visible, quote, managing director, unquote, of the popular Texas Rangers baseball team, a position that would enhance his modest resume as a candidate for governor a few years later. Thus, the largesse of the figures behind Harkin played a key role in George W. Bush's quick march to the presidency. Virtually everyone who has looked at Harkin over the years agrees that it was some kind some, one more one more time here. Virtually everyone who has looked at Harkin over the years agrees that it is some strange kind of corporate beast, like a newly discovered species of manatee. The company's books have never made any sense to outsiders, which might have had something to do with the fact that the only people who seemed to be making any money were the insiders. In 1991, Time magazine proclaimed Harkin, quote, one of the most mysterious and eccentric outfits ever to build for oil, unquote. The Harkin story reads at times like stuff of an airport bookstore thriller. One finds figures associated with BCCI, gold caches, and an alphabet soup of secret societies appearing at critical junctures to bail out Harkin. 
the implication is that Harkin was basically a front for a number of illicit activities, probably money laundering, and it is difficult to uh, escape the uh, conclusion that the laundering Golden Lily loot was part of that. Again, uh, Russ Baker writes, The Harkin story reads at times like the stuff of an airport books for a thriller. One finds figures associated with BCCI, and uh, the aforementioned Pilat Atman was a protege of Gayit Fallon, one of the principals behind BCCI. Gold caches, God knows Golden Lily was part of that, and an alphabet soup of secret societies appearing at critical junctures to bury out Harkin. And the concluding uh, sections of the program, and we, we, this is a review of what was in 1108, uh, some of the Bush family's involvement with the intelligence community during World War II, the Philippines, and the milieu of Douglas MacArthur, including MacArthur's widow, who contributed to W's first presidential campaign and lived next door to uh, Poppy at one point. We will also note that uh, Douglas, uh, Douglas MacArthur's mother at one point turned to E.H. Uh, e. Harriman to try and get her son a job. And uh, Harriman uh, and the Harrimans and the Bushes were major partners in some of the firms involved with uh, helping to finance Nazi Germany. Continuing, we, we're also going to talk about the MacArthur involvement with Philippine gold and the Golden Lily treasure, the Marcos regime's recovery of and use of Golden Lily loot. We talked about that in many programs, including, uh, for the record, 1261. The genesis of Nugenham Bank Attorney William Quasha with, uh, with MacArthur's post-war administration, and MacArthur appointed William Quasha as alien property administrator, and Japanese war gold, the treasure of Yamashita, the golden lily loot, was considered alien property. Once again, from the book Family of Secrets by Russ Baker. Poppy Bush himself doesn't talk much about the Philippines but he, too, did service there. Among other things, he participated in numerous bombing runs over the islands when they were in Japanese hands, including Manila Harbor as part of MacArthur's effort to retake the territory. And, of course, there was his intelligence work. As noted in Chapter 2, on his way to the Pacific, Poppy stopped off at one more time. As noted in Chapter 2 on his way to the Pacific, Poppy stopped off at Pearl Harbor for some face time with officers assigned to the Joint Intelligence Center for the Pacific Ocean Areas, or JICPOA. The early incarnation of JICOA was headed by Admiral Roscoe Hillenkerber, who would, after the war, become the director of the CIA. JICPOA, all in capitals, remains little known and little discussed, but it was a crucial development for wartime intelligence, played a key role in Admiral Chester Nimitz's successful island-hopping campaign, of which George H.W. Bush was a part. Franklin Roosevelt created the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, in July of 1942 to replace a previous intelligence system that was deemed ineffective. General MacArthur, however, borrowed the OSS from operating in the Philippines, so that battleground was pretty much his own show. Thus, Bush became part of a joint intelligence effort coordinated by MacArthur's one more time. Thus, Bush became part of a joint intelligence effort coordinated with Douglas MacArthur's command. 
the association of the Bush Circle would date back to the days when Douglas MacArthur was a young man and his mother contacted E.H. Harriman, father of Prescott's future business partners, to ask the railroad tycoon to give her son a job. Years later, when Poppy Bush became U.N. ambassador, he took an apartment next to Mrs. Douglas MacArthur, and in 1978, MacArthur's widow contributed to W.'s Midland, Texas, congressional campaign. So the Bush family uh, and the MacArthur families involved for a number of generations. By the way, we also looked at the fact that Douglas MacArthur married Patricia Stokesbury, who was the daughter of Morgan partner Edward Stokesbury, as uh, George Sobeys wrote in A Thousand Americans, a key financier of domestic fascist groups. Continuing with Russ Baker's account. Even before Douglas MacArthur commanded U.S. troops in the country, he had major holdings in the largest Philippine gold mine. MacArthur's staff officer, Major General Courtney Whitney, had been an executive of several gold mining companies before the war. Besides the indigenous gold, a great fortune in gold booby was buried in the Philippines, seized by the Japanese as they plundered one East Asian country after another. Several journalists who have spent combined decades on the Philippine gold, Philippines gold story asserted that the cash was actually seized by American forces under MacArthur and that its very existence is a sensitive secret. And Iris Chang had, again, had a cover endorsement on gold warriors. At the end of the war, MacArthur appointed William Quasha as alien property custodian Alien, one more time. At the end of the war, MacArthur appointed William Quasha as alien property administrator. Alien property, unquote, would have included anything of value captured by the Japanese. That would obviously have included the Golden Lily loot in the Philippines. Continuing. Authors Sterling Seagrave and Peggy Seagrave contend that the United States did locate the Japanese gold and use it to fund anti-communist operations the world over. Investigators in the Philippines have said that the gold was staffed in bank vaults in 42 countries. Some of the money was used in Japan to quickly reestablish the ruling clique and a pro-U.S. ruling party, the Liberal Democratic Party. The government oversaw the post-war occupation of Japan. The administrator of the N Fund that secretly channeled these monies to Tokyo was none other than Poppy Bush friend and CIA officer Alfred C. Ulmer. And more about the deep politics uh, surrounding uh, the Philippines gold. And note here that uh, both Roger Stone and uh, Paul Manafort were involved with the Marcos government. They uh, then came to light, uh, perhaps best known for their involvement with Donald Trump. Paul Manafort was allegedly uh, supposedly working for the Soviets. That's ridiculous. He was, in fact, working with the Habsburg Group trying to get Ukraine to associate with the EU and possibly NATO as well. And Roger Stone, well, Roger Stone is Roger Stone, the uh, eminent Vivi Pix expert for a number of Republican administrations, has a picture of Richard Nixon tattooed on his back. Turning once again to family of secrets. Poppy Bush and Ferdinand Marcos cultivated a relationship of mutual appreciation. We love your adherence to democratic principles, unquote. 
Poppy Gush during the visit to Manila in 1981. It's difficult for me to read this without laughing. One more time. Poppy Bush and Ferdinand Marcos cultivated a relationship of mutual appreciation. Quote, We love your adherence to democratic principles, unquote. Poppy Gush during the visit to Manila in 1981. Marcos knew how to play the anti-communist card, and like, like nearly all U.S. leaders, Poppy avidly helped prop up the dictator. A number of Poppy's lieutenants, including Lee Atwater, Paul Manafort, and the notorious fixture Roger Stone, did political, did political consulting for Marcos. Ed Rollins, the manager of the Reagan-Bush 1984 re-election campaign, admitted that a top Filipino politician illegally delivered $10 million in cash from Marcos to Reagan's 1984 campaign, though he declined to name him. Wouldn't surprise me if that was the laundered golden lily loot. Continuing. Poppy also was known to have personally urged Ferdinand Marcos to invest money in the United States. Imelda has claimed that Poppy urged her husband to put, quote, his, unquote, funds into something that Imelda knew only as the Communist Takeover Fund. That suggests that gold in the Philippines has long been seen as a funding vehicle for off-the-books intelligence, covert operations, weapons trafficking, and even coups, plus protection mar- plus protection money that Marcos felt he had to pay. One more time. That suggests that the gold in the Philippines has long been seen as a funding vehicle for off-the-books intelligence, covert operations, weapons trafficking, and even coups, plus protection money that Marcos felt he had to pay. If all this gold was going somewhere, we have to ask, was some of it going into Harkin Energy, where George W. Bush was deeply involved? Certainly, Alan Quasha had a relationship with his father that somewhat paralleled that of W. And Poppies, uh, William Quasha, we're going to read about now. Having remained in the Philippines after the war, William Quasha eventually attained the rarefied status as the only American license to practice. One more time. Having remained in the Philippines after the war, William Quasha eventually attained the rarefied status as the only American license to practice law there. He also picked up some intriguing clients, including the CIA pod. Nugan Hand Bank. By the way, we spoke about that in AFA program number 25. Speaking of William Quasha, he was well off and well connected with capital sources at CAPITAL. In the final days of the Marcos reign, after nearly all of the expatriates had abandoned him, Quasha continued to stick by his man, leaving the American Chamber of Commerce to condemn his, quote, partisan approach, unquote. He may also have been a Marcos money man, just as Phil Kendrick had heard. Philippine investigators seeking to track the billions Marcos had embezzled from the Philippine Treasury or obtained as bribes found that most of the money had been moved overseas through intermediaries. During the years William Quasha was living in Manila and conducting his law practice, his son Alan Quasha attended Harvard Law School and Harvard Business School, even studying in years that overlapped W's time there. Then, Alan Quasha set up a law practice specializing in the alchemy of corporate restructuring. News reports have characterized his approach to acquiring companies on the cheap as bottom feeding and noted that the provenance of the funding was not always clear. Again, note this. 
Then Alan Quart has set up a law practice specializing in the alchemy of corporate restructuring. News reports have characterized his approach to acquiring companies on the cheap as bottom-feeding, noting that the provenance of the funding was not always clear. Additionally, at the time of the Harkin purchase, Poppy Bush, a former CIA director, was vice president with a portfolio for managing covert operations, an empire that was undergirded by laundered intelligence funds. And again, as we have noted, uh, it was the rape of Nanking where Golden Lily really got its kickoff. And uh, I would note again uh, Iris Chang's fear as uh, she was going down to Kentucky. Now, as far as William Stamps Farish, uh, again, he was uh, a major player on the Kentucky political landscape, uh, very involved with the Kentucky Derby and Churchill Downs. So certainly Kentucky is a place where the Bush milieu had an awful lot of clout. And it was in Kentucky that uh, basically... Uh, I was trying to sort of have her Waterloo. That was when she uh, ran into the, uh, well, uh, she felt that her internment there and what she subsequently experienced was part of a government conspiracy against her. And uh, that is something that is difficult to uh, discount past a point. Uh, again, noting uh, how the rape of Nanking and other aspects of the uh, things that Iris was writing about in The Rape of Nanking uh, overlap Golden Lily. And uh, one more time from uh, Gold Warriors uh, about The uh, Rape of Nanking and its connections with uh, Golden Lily. Uh, we read the following. In The Rape of Nanking that followed... Some 300,000 defenseless civilians were slain by Japanese troops. Between 20,000 and 80,000 women of all ages were raped repeatedly, including children, adolescent girls, and grandmothers, many of them disemboweled in the process. Men, women, and children were subjected to acts of such barbarism that the world recoiled in horror. Thousands of men were roped together and machine-gunned or doused with gasoline and set afire. Others were used for bayonet practice or to practice beheading in a sporting competition to see which officer could behead the greatest number that day. Weeks passed while atrocities continued, streets and alleys piled high with corpses. Unlike previous mass atrocities, one more time, unlike previous mass atrocities done out of sight, these were witnessed by hundreds of Westerners, including diplomats, doctors, and missionaries, some of whom smuggled out photographic evidence. It was at this point that Golden Lily came into existence. When the Japanese army swarmed down the China coast in 1937, crossed the Yangtze, and moved westward to Nanking, Pick three. When the Japanese army swarmed down the China coast in 1937, crossed the Yangtze, and moved westward to Nanking, 
So many units were involved across such a broad front that there was danger of Japan's ruling elite losing control of the financial side of conquest. How could you keep Army or Navy officers from sidetracking gold bullion and priceless artworks, not to mention smaller-scale thefts by soldiers? At the time, groups of Yakuza or Yakuza were moving through newly occupied areas conducting their own reign of terror. To keep everything under strict control at the highest level, the Imperial General Headquarters created Golden Lily, Kin no Yuri, named after one of Emperor Hiroshito's poems. This was to be a palace organization of Japan's top financial minds and specialists in all forms of treasure, including cultural and religious antiquities, supported by accountants, bookkeepers, shipping experts, and units of the army and navy, all overseen by princes of the blood. When China was milked by Golden Lily, the army would hold the cow while princes skinned the cream. This organization was put directly under the command of the emperor's brother, Prince Chichibu. We know the date because the imperial general headquarters itself was only set up in the imperial palace in Tokyo in November of 1937, just as the rape of Nanking was commencing. One more time. We know the date because the Imperial General Headquarters itself was only set up in the Imperial Palace in Tokyo in November of 1937, just as the rape of Nanking was commencing. The Imperial Army already had a number of special service units, among them intelligence teams specializing in different kinds of ordinary and different kinds of cultural and financial espionage, and secret service agents like General Doehara outside the ordinary command structure. These were assigned the Golden Lily, giving it the resources it needed to find treasure of all kinds, from the sublime to the most prosaic. In Nanking, the first wave of Golden Lily in Nanking, the first wave of Golden Lily helpers were Kenbei Pai, the Japanese intelligence service. Special Kenbei Pai units moved to the city, seizing all government assets, blowing open bank vaults breaking into and emptying homes of wealthy families for whatever gold, gemstones, jewelry, artworks, and currency could be found. Nanking had been rich for over a thousand years. Many wealthy and prominent Chinese had mansions in town and estates in the surrounding countryside. This was not the only time Nanking was racked by conquerors, but it was by far the most deliberate, meticulous, and systematic. At least 6,000 metric tons of gold are reported to have been amassed by the Kempe Pai during this first pass. Historical research in the looting shows what, well, beginning again. Historical research in the looting shows that what is officially reported typically is only a tiny fraction of what is actually stolen. Also looted were many of the small biscuit bars that individual Chinese prefer to hoard, along with small platinum ingots, diamonds, rubies, and sapphires, small works of art, and antiquities. These were taken from private homes and from tombs vandalized by the army in the countryside. Remorselessly thorough, the Japanese hammered the teeth out of corpses to extract gold fillings. A number of other princes joined Golden Lily at this stage, spending the war in between Japan rather than participating in less glamorous and dangerous combat assignments. 
Aside from Prince Osaka, the emperor's uncle and in charge of the rape of Nanking, we know Prince Chichibu and Prince Takeba were at Nanking because both later confided to friends that they had horrific nightmares from witnessing atrocities. And again, the rape of Nanking obviously uh, dealt with that. And also, uh, uh, bear in mind that Iris Chang was doing a book and documentary film about uh, the Bataan Death March and the survivors, some of whom were suing Japanese corporations for compensation for having been used as slave labor. And that suit was turned down by Judge Vaughn Walker, appointed to the bench, the federal bench, by George H.W. Bush. Once again, from Gold Warriors, one Japanese source told us Ishihara might be the notorious Colonel Tsuji Masanobu, reviled for the Sukhshing massacres of ethnic Chinese in Singapore and Malaya, and for eating an allied pilot's liver. After Sukhshing, he was sent to Manila as troubleshooter with the rank of, quote, Imperial Inspector General, unquote. To perform, Tsuji became a figure responsible for the Bataan Death March when he bypassed mild-mannered General Homa and urged field officers to murder Allied prisoners during the march. When he was in areas controlled by the Imperial Navy, Tsuji had the Navy rank of captain. In areas controlled by the Army, he changed uniforms and became a colonel. By the way, Kadama Yoshio did the same thing, although he was an admiral and general. Although he made frequent trips to Tokyo by plane the next two years and put in appearances at Guadalcanal and other battles, he is said to have spent most of 1943 and 1944 in Luzon working with Kadama and keeping an eye on Golden Lily treasure sites in and around Manila. Late in 1944, Tsuji moved to Burma and Siam and was in Bangkok in August 1945 when Japan surrendered, eluding capture. And again, he may very well have been the, one of the key figures involved in the Bataan Death March. He was also involved with Golden Lily, and those both overlap what Iris uh, Chang was investigating, writing about, and or doing films about. So I think the casual dismissal of Iris Chang as mentally ill, uh, troubled, etc., is premature. Again, that anyone facing what Iris Chang faced, and if she had a major effect on the political landscape, anyone facing what she was facing would certainly feel uh, deeply, deeply troubled. And uh, I think there are serious questions about her death. Uh, remember, uh, do check the website, spitfirelist.com, regularly for the comments made by Parafractal and other brilliant listeners. Also, uh, WFNU is podcasting for the record. There's a link at the top of each written for the record description and each, each food for thought post that will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts. And also another link at the top of each of those will enable you to obtain the 32 gigabyte may soon be 64-gigabyte flash drive with all of my life's printed and recorded work, plus an, a library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files. This concludes for the record program number 1310, Deep Politics and the Death of Iris Chang, Part 4. This is being recorded on August 11th of the year 2023. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun. <laughs>